I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, one of the more positive outcomes of the pandemic was the discovery of a new vaccine, saving millions of lives. Now the very same technology is being used to revolutionize modern medicine. mRNA is one of these technologies that you can think about using to send to any sort of place. It's sort of like a UPS truck, which you can deliver wherever you want in the human body. And later, could traditional sexual reproduction be a thing of the past? One of the promises of this technology is that, at least in theory, a same-sex couple would be able to make a sperm and an egg that have their own DNA. This has also been achieved in mice using an egg cell that had been derived from a male mouse. From mRNA to AI, the revolutionary technologies in biology, medicine, and reproduction. That's coming up on Life Examined. The full history of the COVID-19 pandemic has yet to be written. But one thing's for sure. Without an effective vaccine, millions of people would have died. The discovery and speedy manufacture of the vaccine was primarily due to a remarkable and revolutionary new discovery in biology, mRNA, a term until 2020 most of us hadn't heard of. By the end of 2022, mRNA COVID vaccines had been injected billions of times in over 184 countries. Unlike past vaccines, scientists use technology to engineer the mRNA vaccine. They're part of a growing field in synthetic biology, learning how to write and rewrite DNA. And because of the rapid advancement in tech and AI, it has the potential of revolutionizing not only medicine, but the environment we live in. What used to take top scientists two years can now be done in seconds. In his audiobook, Higher Animals, Vaccines, Synthetic Biology, and the Future of Life, Author Michael Spector writes about this new era in science, one in which scientists can make and alter cells digitally, while also making advances at incredible speeds. Michael Spector is professor at MIT, and he joins me now. Michael Spector, welcome to Life Examined. I'm very grateful to be here. Thanks for having me. I wonder, for those that that are unfamiliar really with what mRNA technology is, if you could just give us a little background about why and how it was created and um, why it's so fascinating. Well, it's fascinating because it's basically digital information. RNA is the thing in your body that's sort of like a messenger. It carries out messages to various parts of your body. And at some point, a variety of researchers realized you could probably use that sort of system to carry information to make proteins that could act like vaccines. In the past, we've always had vaccines that were kind of a version of take the thing that's making you sick and either put a teeny little bit of it in you so that it'll raise antibodies but won't get you really sick or put a dead version with some of the same proteins. This doesn't do that at all. This tells you with blueprints, what it tells your body what to do, how to construct a protein that can then go sort of lasso the part of the COVID virus that infects you. Can you talk about some of the early players in this or scientists? I mean, do you get a sense of, of how this discovery happened and, and the work it took to bring this to light? Yeah, I think you have to look at this particular discovery as part of a much bigger thing that started with recombinant DNA technology. At some point in the 70s, a guy named Paul Berg at Stanford cut out a piece of a virus and put it into a bacterium. And it was the first time that scientists were able to mingle the DNA of two species. And there was a lot of screaming about Dr. Frankenstein, but that was the beginning of the era where we were able to start taking DNA the basic blueprints for life, and editing it, rewriting it, refining it. Now we can print it, we can create it. And what that vaccine, that 14 billion shots of which have been now delivered, was that started out as a sequence that was put up on the internet by Chinese virologists. A bunch of people at various universities downloaded that sequence, ordered the DNA, stitched the DNA together, and then infected cells. And Moderna, one of the two companies that makes this vaccine, they had that vaccine in about four days. Wow. 
And previously, I'm sure you know this, but previously the quickest vaccine ever approved by the FDA was four years for the mumps. This took a year because there were some hurdles to get through, but in fact, they had the right vaccine in four days. I think that the really important thing to think of here is that this is biology in a new era. It's digital information and it moves at the speed of light. And what that means is if a virus appears, we ought to be able to take nucleic acids and make a vaccine very rapidly and distribute it very rapidly. So how does this kind of differ from things like CRISPR or the idea that, you know, someday we can write all new types of genetic code or, you know, edit future genetic codes? Is this kind of all the same thing or are there differentiations within that? Yeah, it's, I, I would look at it as a genetic toolbox, and CRISPR is one basic element in that toolbox. CRISPR is a molecular buzzsaw, really, that you can send somewhere, and it will edit DNA. It will take a piece out. It'll put a piece in. Um, since CRISPR was developed, there have been other systems that seem even more promising and more specific. mRNA is one of these technologies that you can think about using to send to any sort of place. It's sort of like a UPS truck, which you can deliver wherever you want in the human body. And that's exciting because obviously COVID is a problem, but so are many other diseases. And lots of companies are now using this technology to think about ways to develop vaccines for other infectious diseases Mm. and treatments for very specific types of cancer. You know, when we, when we treat cancer with chemotherapy, we basically poison the bad cells and hope we kill more bad cells than good cells in enough of a quantity so that you live and prosper. What we'd really love to do is get the bad cells and leave the good cells alone. Mm-hmm. And this kind of technology begins to let us think that might be possible. Yeah. And I think one thing that's so different about all of this is just the way that scientists are working. I think we have this notion of scientists being in labs and wearing white coats and doing experiments with like real physical, tangible things. But the way I'm hearing this described, this is a lot of computer work and and data. I mean, is that right? You're totally right. I mean, in the end, whatever you develop, you need to experimentally test it out in an animal or a cell culture or a variety of things to make sure it works. But I went to see a systems biologist at Columbia a couple weeks ago, and his whole lab was on the computer. It looked like I was going to Wall Street. Uh I mean, they design things on the computer. They order things on the internet. This is completely digital. And again, at some point when you create a vaccine or a treatment, you then have to test it out on cells. You can do that only so much on a computer. You got to eventually see if it works. But it's not like it used to be where everything took forever. I know people who got a PhD 40 years ago by characterizing part of one gene. Mm -hmm. This is some, and it would take them two years. This is something that wouldn't take one second today. You mentioned cancer, which is a really important one because there's so many different types of cancers that appear in so many different parts of the body. But but right. where else could you see this having an impact in terms of health? Well, in terms of health, I mean, one of the big problems that we have is developing an influenza vaccine. Influenza is theoretically about as bad a disease as there can be when it's really, really powerful. Lots of times it's not. But we don't know. Nature doesn't issue warnings saying we're going to be bad this year. And what we do every year is we go get one vaccine and it's kind of mediocre. It's better than not getting one. And then we have to get a new one the next year. Well, a bunch of people are now working on a universal influenza vaccine with the same sort of technology that was used to develop the COVID vaccines. And you'd use it once or you'd use it once in 10 years, kind of like a tetanus booster. And it would attack part of, you know, the flu virus looks like a piece of broccoli. There's a stalk and there's a flower. The flower keeps changing. The stalk stays the same. It's been really hard to get antibodies to that stalk, but they're doing it now. So that's very promising. There are lots of other infectious diseases they're working on. Um, 
it's really and it's it opens up a whole possibility for treating illnesses that we haven't been able to treat very well in the past. Mm. I mean, there's there's so many others, and I don't know if these would fall under the the types of diseases that could be treated. But I mean, malaria, TB, HIV. I mean, are all of these potential places that this technology could help? Yep. In fact, there's a guy. There's a couple guys at Oxford. Um, who are working really hard on an mRNA malaria vaccine. Malaria has been really difficult to get rid of. It kills millions. And to have a vaccine, especially for young people who are the people who get killed in the greatest numbers, um, would be magical. It's just been really hard to develop it. They're, They're seeing some really early promise. HIV, the smartest minds in science have spent 40 years trying to develop a, a vaccine for HIV. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say, yeah, we're going to take care of that too. But it's certainly possible and a lot of people are working on it and it's very promising. And one of the reasons it's so promising is you can change these letters around the way I would change letters around on a piece I'm writing on my laptop. Mm-hmm. So if we find out that there's a new variant of a virus, as we keep finding out with COVID, you can just rewrite the vaccine. It doesn't, it takes 26 minutes. It doesn't take two years. You mentioned that there are some concerns with this too. And, and I wonder, you know, there was this thought going out there and I don't know if it was just in the realm of conspiracy theorists, but, but a general fear that once inserted that, that these types of vaccines can, can stay in our bodies or they can, alter our bodies in ways we don't understand yet. Can you talk a little about some of those things that, you know, we'd hear about reading or friends would tell yeah. you about? What are your thoughts on that? Um, those are not the fears to have. That, yeah. in fact, doesn't happen. What happens with an mRNA vaccine is it goes into the body. It tells your body how to build the thing you need to protect yourself. And then it dissipates and mm. it's gone. It's actually safer than any vaccine we've ever developed in history. The problem, and it's a significant problem, is that if you're moving around things on the internet at the speed of light, if biology really moves that fast, well, you can make vaccines, you can also alter viruses. And it used to be that there were a few people who could do that. Now there's quite a few. And as biology becomes, it's akin to like going from the punch card era in computers, to the laptop era. My phone is now more powerful than the computer that sent astronauts to the moon. Well, that's going to happen with biology. And what it's going to mean is someday your fourth grader is going to come home and say, look at the organism, the living thing I just developed. Mm. And in many ways, that'll be cool because people will finally understand the power of genetics. But if you want to do the wrong thing, or if you make a terrible mistake, you can unleash a deadly virus in the same way that we unleash a wonderful vaccine. And so we need to start thinking, you know, we publish all these sequences. I could go get the sequence of any virus that exists off the internet. And we need to start thinking about information hazards and who needs to get this information and in different ways that we can protect ourselves from the very, very few people that might do harm. It's sort of, I'm not suggesting this, very many people would want to do this, but you wouldn't need very many people because when you're talking about something that moves exponentially, one is enough. Mm. So just just to clarify, in the way that you can now kind of print a vaccine, one could also print a virus, something that could spread just as easily? Well, it's not so much printed as you could write it. Like mm-hmm. If you have the sequence for smallpox or some other terrible virus, you can make that virus. We all, biologists all over the world, made copies of COVID in the lab. That is how they could figure out how to re-engineer it to make a vaccine. Mm-hmm. Well, if you can make a copy of COVID in the lab to, to help humanity, you are getting to the point where you can make a copy of smallpox in the lab. Smallpox is a much bigger and more complicated virus, but others aren't. The influenza virus isn't as big. Mm-hmm. And you, when you have that virus, you can infect cells. And I don't know if you remember the Unabomber, but he 
didn't believe in industrial society and he sent out bombs blowing computer scientists up. If he was around today, I assume he'd probably just inject himself with the virus that he had altered and fly around and infect people. Hmm. And that's something that we need to be careful about. Interesting. When you think about the history of science and medicine, is there any consensus, you know, whether among you and your colleagues or other scientists out there, just about the magnitude of this type of technology in terms of its importance potentially moving forward in terms of what it can do for society at large? Well, I mean, I think there is a consensus, but before I tell you what it is, I mm. think you should also know that both people like me, i.e. science journalists and a lot of scientists tend to hype things and make it seem like magical cures uh -huh. are falling from the heavens. I think this is for real. What happened with COVID is remarkable. In uh, Lancet published really solid data saying that in the very first year of using the COVID vaccine, 22 million lives were saved. I mean, the ability to move so fast and adapt so easily is something we've never had before. Mm -hmm. There are still challenges ahead, but you know, we're getting to a point where we can figure out and write biology. And if you can do that and you do it well, you can address all sorts of problems that we couldn't even think about addressing in the past. So I think the consensus is that this is a revolutionary time in a really wonderful time. But having said that, I think we need to also realize nothing this powerful comes without some problems attached. Just curious how you would reflect on something that maybe has more to do with human psychology or the way that we adapt to these incredible situations. I remember we had a very well-known rabbi on our show, Rabbi Steve Leader, who, who would often utter the, the kind of Jewish thought or something, I believe it comes from the Torah somewhere, which is, you know, when we must, we can. This idea that when you're up against something that is so kind of profoundly tragic as COVID, that you're going to come across some incredible advances because there's no way around it. Do you think that's often the way that these big breakthroughs work? That there's just such a big obstacle that there has to be these incredible transformations in terms of how we understand science or solutions? Yeah, to some degree, I think also what happens is scientists go out there and they try to figure out one thing and they find another. CRISPR was just this weird thing that some Japanese scientists saw that was palindromic DNA. They had no idea what it did, what it was for, and they kind of ignored it for 15 years. That's sometimes how these big steps are made. You just stumble onto something when you're looking at something else, and then you realize it can be used. The idea that we can now use biology, program it, and send things to cells in our body to fix what's broken, that is powerful. I, on, your more, on your larger, more philosophical question, yeah, I think we rise to the occasion. Humans are pretty resourceful. And as a species, we've managed to overcome quite a lot. Mm. And I think what we've seen with medicine is, you know, just to step back, a hundred years ago in the United States, the life expectancy was less than half of what it is today. Um, today, someone born in Bangladesh is likely to live longer than the richest white man born in the United States 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. This is really remarkable advances. Yeah. And I think it's because, you know, we have figured out the things we need to survive and prosper. The, the other argument I find really compelling are that these great advances are made sometimes completely by mistake. I mean, that would be the story of penicillin, like things interacting with each other in ways we didn't expect or CRISPR kind yeah. of being a random discovery. And I always find that to be an interesting way to think about some of the big breakthroughs. They're almost accidents. The, I think most scientists would agree with you. I think they wouldn't use the word accident. I think what they would say is, you know, if you go to Congress, a lot of people, times they're saying, what are you going to do with this research? And basic scientists just, they, they're trying to figure out how life works. Mm -hmm. They're not always going into the lab and saying, I want to find a cure for colon cancer. They do, but it doesn't work necessarily that specifically. What they need to do is figure out what causes it and what makes cells go awry. 
And so the history of scientific discovery is very much the history of serendipitous development that either you were guessing at and you were right, or you were guessing at and you were wrong and something different and better came along. Um, and then you just work on a hypothesis. That's what the scientific method is. You just try stuff out and see if it works. If it doesn't work, you try other stuff out. Interesting. I think that's how most psychiatric medications were actually developed. They worked on yeah. something else, but it turns out one of the side effects was lower anxiety, which I always just find so interesting. Yeah, it is. I mean, I think I think a lot of the drugs that we use today were stumbled upon. This also happened with the early HIV medications. We weren't sophisticated enough to design something on a computer and say, well, you've got this depression and it's because of certain cellular problems and we're going to attack those specific problems. And now it's not like, hey, we can do that. But we're getting to the point where we can do that and we're getting to the point someday, I don't think for me, but my kid or her kids will be able to go and say, design me a drug that will prevent this thing from happening. And I don't think we're so many years away from that sort of um, really fantastic breakthrough. Right, and I think this is the hope, right? Which is that, that medicine becomes more individualized depending on just who we are, our own genome, the way that our cells interact with other cells. I mean, yeah. that would be the ideal solution, wouldn't it? Yeah, and it's happening. I mean, if you look at the Human Genome Project, the big giant Manhattan project for the human cell, it took 13 years and $3 billion to characterize the genome of an individual human. Mm. If I wanted to get my own genome read and characterized tomorrow when I go up to MIT, I could do it for 100 bucks in two hours. <laughs> And what, what that means, if you take that and you take the falling prices of computers, which means that there's just lots of computer processing power out there, you get some really wonderful synergies and you're able to sort of make connections. That's what artificial intelligence in many ways is about, able to make connections between patterns that we wouldn't necessarily see ourselves. And I think one of the benefits of that is going to be a truly personalized medicine. We've been talking about that for a long time, but I think we're getting there. Mm. I'm glad you brought that up because it seems that we have a couple of really important technologies emerging all at once. There's this mRNA that you're talking about, but there's also the rise of AI suddenly. I mean, it seems like here we are in this amazing moment of technology. Can you see the ways in which we might have an interaction between something like oh. AI. I mean, you, you talked about it there for a second, but can you expand on it? Sure. Uh, one of the most important things that has happened with artificial intelligence isn't something that a lot of people talk about, but this company, DeepMind, that's owned by Google, they saw something called the protein folding problem a couple years ago. All life is based on proteins. Proteins are kind of like the little molecular engines of all bodies, human, other animals. You don't breathe without them. You don't digest food without them. You don't close your eyes without them. And they all come in three-dimensional packages that are unbelievably complicated, like you, these giant balls of yarn or spaghetti that are twisted in crazy ways. And what you wanna to do to develop a drug is you wanna figure out how those proteins fold so that you can match a drug like a sort of, you know, plug in a plug socket so that you can make it work properly. And that has been impossible for humans to do, but AI has done it and they've solved that problem. So you can, now, there are now 200 million human proteins that you can go to a protein database and see how it folds. And already we're seeing scientists take that information and marry it to the technologies I've just been talking about to figure out how you send something to a particular part of the body to cure it or prevent something. In fact, a guy named Feng Zhang at MIT, who's one of the CRISPR pioneers, about three weeks ago published a paper in which he found a protein that kind of acted like a syringe. You can send it to the nucleus of any cell. You can pack it 
with anything you really want and you can inject that cell. Mm -hmm. So that just opens tons of possibilities. And that was 100% made possible by using this artificial intelligence to predict the structure of the proteins. So I think we're going to see these sort of synergies are going to be really powerful and exciting. Are there incentives for for pharmaceutical companies to, to run with this stuff? I mean, you know, we've been so dependent upon these physical medications for so long and the price of them and the expense. But what does the world look like when things are, are more tailored, they're more advanced, they're more computerized? Is this something that could really weave itself into daily medicine? Sure, I think so. Because when you talk about sort of personalized vaccines, for instance, well, you could see a company develop tons of vaccines and just change little things for individuals or yeah. for individual groups. It wouldn't cost them a lot of money and there would be a lot of incentive to do it because a lot of people will pay money to get a vaccine that's going to prevent something terrible. Um, the bigger question of if AI solves these problems, will we need humans to solve them? That is probably a question for the next episode. Huh. And it's a really legitimate question. And I think that is more what are we going to do and how are we going to distribute that information, the knowledge and the freedom that it brings us? Well, this is the big question everywhere right now when suddenly, yeah. you know, songs are being written by AI and who gets to claim the rights to them and who's going to get to claim the rights if those are medicines or ways we treat illnesses. I mean, I suppose these are these are kind of the next round of big questions we have to ask. Yeah, they're really big questions. I think what the optimists would say, I'm not suggesting I'm one, but I'm semi one. If you got to the point where AI was that helpful, then you wouldn't have some of the scarcity we have now. And you'd be freed up not to worry about the cost of these things because they wouldn't be expensive. Um, on the other hand, there's always the possibility that you know 17 trillionaires will just get more money mm. and hundreds of millions of people won't benefit from this. And, and I think that's the worry with AI. How do you make this... When you, especially when you combine it with something like medicine, how do you make it accessible and cheap and available for everyone in a fair and equitable way? And that's something we're going to have to figure out. I mean, we have a lot of issues as a society and as a species that we're going to have to address in the next 20 years. And we haven't addressed those problems before, but we don't have a choice now. Well, finally, if we just think about cultural implications here, do you think that, you know, if we have cures for everything, it'll change the way we behave? I mean, could this ultimately kind of alter the landscape in which we feel like we, you know, can can act responsibly, irresponsibly? We can have solutions suddenly to everything. Viruses will disappear. Or there'll be more of them. I mean, just kind of long term, what do you think about this technology in terms of what it'll do to this world? Well, I mean, I think technology that makes it possible to live almost as long as you want to live in a healthy way, it's going to have to revolutionize the world. How could it not? Mm. Um, now, we're just going to have to make a lot of decisions along the way about how we want to live, where we want to live, how we're going to distribute these resources. I mean, in the end, we're going to have these fantastic technologies. Who's going to get them first? How long is it going to take before non-billionaires get them. I, I tend to think pretty rapidly. And again, if you look at the COVID, that vaccine went out really fast to hundreds of millions of people, then billions. And, you know, in the past, people sometimes who object to things like GMOs, they didn't object to something that was made in the lab being shot into their arm because they knew that it was going to prevent them from getting really sick. Mm. So I think the degree to which we have solutions to our biggest problems, the rest will come. But yeah, it's going to be a big change. My guest has been Michael Spector, professor at MIT, staff writer at The New Yorker, and author of the new audiobook, Higher Animals, Vaccines, Synthetic Biology, and the Future of Life. Michael, thanks for this really interesting conversation. We appreciate the time. Oh, it's been great to be with you. Thank you for having me. Still to come on Life Examined, the future of fertility, reproduction, and the end of sex. 
That's all ahead. Stay with us. This is KCRW. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard science journalist and author of Higher Animals, Vaccines, Synthetic Biology, and the Future of Life talk about how new technologies like mRNA are going to revolutionize the future of biology. A new era of medicine may mean vaccines and treatments, which are personalized to target specific areas of the body. Huge potential changes may also be seen in reproductive health and fertility, IVF, in vitro fertilization, has been around for 40 years. But what if, instead of harvesting eggs, ripe human eggs could be derived from a person's skin cells? It could potentially be cheaper and avoid the enormous discomfort. And why, when we're all living much longer than we did 100 years ago, has the age of fertility for women not increased? In her New Yorker article, The Future of Fertility, Emily Witt explores reproduction and fertility and shares some of the latest technologies which could, for example, potentially mean that a same-sex couple could have a child genetically related to both partners. Emily Witt is a staff writer for The New Yorker and the author of Future Sex, A New Kind of Free Love. Emily Witt, welcome to Life Examined. Thanks for having me. So we're going to jump into IVG. And in your own words, uh, what is this and, and how does it work? Sure. IVG stands for in vitro gametogenesis. So it's the generation of gametes, sperm and egg cells in a lab. And in a very basic level, the way that it works is a, a scientist would take a biopsy of an ordinary somatic cell, a blood cell or a skin cell, and engineer that back into a stem cell, which has the capability of becoming any kind of cell in the body, and then turning that stem cell into an egg cell or a sperm cell. You mentioned that this actually started in Japan with a couple of scientists. I mean, the, the story of it's, it, it reads like something you know, out of a science fiction book. Can you, can you say a little bit about that? Yeah. So this has not yet been achieved in humans, but the proof of concept has been done in mice. And so a pair of Japanese scientists, what they did was exactly that. They, they biopsied um, skin cells from the tip of a mouse's tail, and they engineered those back into what they're called, they're called uh, induced pluripotent stem cells. And then they turned those stem cells into egg cells, successfully fertilized them using IVF, and, um, and, and made mice pups that, by all appearances, appeared to be normal. Mm. And just to kind of keep clarifying the language here, what, what is a gamete? How, how do you describe that? Yeah, a gamete is a reproductive cell. And they have, a, an, as you may remember from high school biology, they have a number of very unique characteristics. They have, um, when they divide, they undergo something called meiosis, where they, which is one of the most important processes in nature, where chromosomes divide so that they can recombine with chromosomes from another person or another creature. <laughs> and um, yeah, they have other unique qualities that, that make them in some ways more complicated than ordinary human cells. Mm. So talk about why this is a really fascinating and for some a, a really appealing option right now. I mean, it seems that the, where this could take us is, is fairly groundbreaking. Yeah, so my article focused in particular on egg cells. And as anyone who has gone through a process of IVF or egg freezing will know, um, women are born with all the egg cells that they'll ever have in their body. And as they age, they, the number and their quality decline. And so for people experiencing infertility on that side, often what's the problem is is some kind of shortage of egg cells or or the egg cells don't seem to be capable of fertilization mm. so the promise of this technology would be able to um, basically solve a problem of scarcity you would be able to generate as many egg cells as as you want 
and use those egg cells to to fertilize yeah to to make to make an embryo yeah and in terms of of where you you gather these gametes i mean to create uh, another living being does it matter whether they come from a man or a woman or do you need two different ones coming from two different people what happens there yeah, so one of the promises of this technology is that at least in theory, a same-sex couple would be able to make a sperm and an egg that have their own DNA. So this has also been achieved in mice. The, the just same Japanese scientists uh, were able to make an embryo using an egg cell that had been derived from a male mouse mm. and um yeah so they haven't again haven't achieved this in humans but the hope is that one day it will allow same-sex couples to have genetically related children wow how does this then compare to ivf which is the other option available out there of course same-sex couples can't produce a child just between two of them. I mean, there needs to be a sperm or an egg donor, depending on the sex of the couple. But I I take it these are two very different models as to how one could create life. Well, except IVG would still depend on IVF because once you, you wouldn't need the egg cells taken from the body, but otherwise the process of making an embryo in a dish is still, would still be the same. So, so once you have the gametes, it would be the same process as IVF. You would fertilize those in a dish and then, you know, you might be able to do, you would likely do um, some kind of pre-implantation genetic diagnosis to make sure those embryos are healthy and normal. And then you would choose the one you think is best optimized um, to become a baby and you would implant that in the uterus and hope for the best. Okay. So you still need both of those technologies as of now to create a child. So this began in Japan, but you write about a U.S. company called Conception that's also working on this technology. Talk a little bit about how and why they were founded and what their plans are moving forward. Yeah, Conception was founded by, at first, by its CEO, is named Matt, Matt Krisloff, and he was previously he's not a research scientist he he was previously he graduated from college and worked at y combinator the the well-known um silicon valley startup incubator and he was also on the ground in the early days of open ai mm. and he was inspired by the idea of starting a company with a very long-term research goal where the immediate endeavor was, you know, not to make a product, but to, to kind of figure, just kind of experiment scientifically. And he became interested in IVG and um, started visiting labs at first with Y Combinator, thinking he might want to fund some of them through that uh, incubator's nonprofit wing. But then as time went on, he decided he wanted to start a company to get uh, instead. So he linked up with a reproductive biologist named Pablo Hurtado Gonzalez and then a woman who had experience with embryos and embryology um, named Bianca Serres, and the three of them started Conception. And what's unique about it is that it's a startup and it's it's essentially trying to apply an engineering model where you iterate experiments and repeat them over and over at a at a pretty large scale uh, to try and achieve your goal versus an academic model where you're working on much smaller teams maybe and um, your results are analyzed by critical public and all of that. How far away? are they or other scientists from being able to replicate this in humans? So they've, they've reached certain uh, milestones. They're, they're focused exclusively on egg cells. They're mm-hmm. not working on sperm. Um, and they've been able to make the cells that kind of recreate the ovarian environment because the egg cell doesn't mature just on its own. It needs, um, it needs a bunch of different cells in the ovary to kind of receive and send signals that help it grow. So they've also um, made those cells in a lab and they've put the germ cells and the helper cells together and they've reached what's called the primary follicle stage, which is kind of um, 
in the human body would be what starts happening when you reach puberty and an egg matures each month. So they haven't brought it all the way to the end, but they have reached a pretty important stage. Yeah, well, it's hard not to think about this just in terms of like a science fiction um, framework, right? I mean, one imagines when they hear this type of technology that we're heading into a period where humans can be manufactured, that we can just kind of start creating them in ways that one might have read about in a book or in a film. I mean, is that overblown, that idea? Where do you see some of the stuff going? Yes and no. I mean, there it does evoke the fantasies of, of Brave New World by Aldous Huxley in the movie Gattaca, you know, and there is a possibility because you can generate way more, a, a much higher number of embryos using this process, theoretically, you can, it also enables a more robust process of genetic selection. And so there is some fear that because it would likely only be accessible to the wealthy, that it would also create another kind of class difference as people try to optimize for genetic qualities that, that they think would give their child some advantage in life. Mm. Um, so there are these dystopian fears. And yet, on the other hand, there's the real desire of people, I think, to have children, to have children later in life. And that's a very ordinary desire. They're not trying to create some superhuman. They just want to have a kid. Yeah. And I want to get to that because I know that's a really important part of this, of course. If you could ballpark, like, when we might see this actually play out in human form, are we talking years, decades? What would your thought be? I would think decades. I would think at least, should they achieve proof of concept in humans in the next year or two, I think it would be 10 or 20 years before this has been proven safe. Let's shift gears and talk just about this culturally for a moment. And one thing that's really interesting, and I learned in your article, is that humans are now living to be 70, 80, 90, 100. I mean, our, li our lifespan has really changed in the last 100 years. But interestingly, the way that eggs fertilize and then kind of are, are no longer able to be used for reproduction hasn't really changed. It appears that it's mid-40s for a woman in which the eggs can no longer be fertilized. So we, we have these two, you know, on one hand, we have a number shifting as we get older, but another number staying the same. Can you talk a little bit about the the female body and why this is such a, an interesting and complex issue when it comes to trying to have kids later in life? Yeah, as any woman knows, uh, one of the very basic facts of life is that by 50, you know, or your mid 40s, usually you're totally unable to conceive naturally. And this has not shifted despite all of our advances in medical science. Um, Nobody really knows why the human ovary ages twice as fast as every other organ in the body. And one thing I realized in researching this story is that there's just very little is understood about reproductive aging. And that's now becoming a problem in a society where we are living longer and starting families much later. And science is beginning to understand that our ignorance of what is going on in that process is actually maybe holding us back on a kind of societal level. Mm. And it's, this is unique also just among animals in general. A, a lot of other species out there are able to give birth far later into their life than humans are. Isn't that right? That's right. So, yeah, so humans have, humans are really unique in having such a long post-reproductive lifespan. It's basically us and toothed whales. So <laughs> us, killer whales, um, porpoise, a certain kind of porpoise, I think. Yeah, narwhals, beluga whales. And, but a chimpanzee, our closest relative, can, can give birth almost to the end of its natural lifespan. An elephant can, you know, whale, other species of whales can. So it's a real anomaly and nobody, you know, evolutionary biologists haven't really come up with a robust and, and conclusive theory about why. And I think there's, there is a big question here, too, about the options available for a woman to keep open the possibility of having a child. So this is where we talk about egg freezing, IVF, and 
And I should mention again that the, the cost can be so astronomically high for folks that it, it is not an option. Could you speak to the, the equitable aspect of this and how maybe these are, it seems to me, the only options on the table right now? Yeah. So, you know, your only option for prolonging fertility past a certain age is, is to freeze your eggs. And that is expensive and it's, you know, it can cause certain people's bodies to have pretty violent reactions to the treatment. And it doesn't work that well. It depends what age you do it. But um, for example, I froze eggs when I was 39 after this breakup I went through. And there's, I think, a 40% chance that any of those would result in a successful pregnancy. And that that kind of maxed me out financially, so I couldn't do another round, but also I didn't want to physically. It's a really taxing process. So yeah, it, it's not a great option. Um, one thing that this technology might help on a slightly less ambitious scale is there's a company I read about called Gamito that is not trying to make a human egg using stem cell technology, but is trying to uh, create that ovarian environment um, that I spoke about before. And they would, their business plan is you would make the egg freezing process a little bit less taxing by not needing to do this process where you're shooting yourself with hormones to mature a bunch of eggs all at the same time. Instead, you would take out immature eggs from your body and put them in this lab-made kind of mini, you know, put them with these ovarian helper cells that would help the eggs mature and freeze them that way. Mm. And then from there, would they eventually be implanted into the woman or what happens at that point? That's, it's a pretty fascinating model. Yeah, so if you were doing, if you were ready to have a child and you had a, a sperm donor or a partner willing who could who could donate, then then you would make an embryo as you would with IVF and and proceed with that process. If if you weren't ready, you would freeze the eggs that you made. Can you also take a moment to just address the funding of research into women's healthcare? Do you find that it is underfunded? There's still a lot that we don't know. There's not a lot of research heading in that direction. What are your thoughts? Yeah, women's healthcare is really underfunded and it's very, and reproductive biology. I mean, the fact that we know so little about menopause and, and about reproductive aging and why the ovaries age twice as fast as the, as the other organs in the body, all of that is reflective of where we place emphasis on research and what kind of research gets funded and how we treat women's health versus men's health or the health of the elderly or children. It's really um, kind of a, it's a small field in science and it does not receive the funding that it needs. And there's another layer to it, um, which is that in the United States, anything to do with embryos or fetal tissue is wrapped up in the abortion debate. And so, for example, the kind of research that Conception is doing, attempting to make embryos, that uh, cannot be funded by the federal government. And there are other restrictions on the kind of clinical trials that can be done that are kind of adjacent to the abortion debate that might make it impossible for this technology to be fully researched in this country. And it's possible that it will end up being advanced somewhere else with a less polarized environment. Well, if you take a step back and just look at all of this from an evolutionary standpoint or philosophically, and just the, these really big, interesting questions, the fact that a child someday could be born with eggs coming from a man, or same-sex couples can produce both sperm and egg. How does this just change our notion of what it means to be human and to have different sexes in the world, the binary there, or where this is taking us in terms of how we think about the future of, of humanity. I mean, I know big questions, but to me, it, it poses a lot of a lot of interesting things. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about the fundamental process of the creation of human life, and IVF has now been around for more than forty years, and it's become an extremely mainstream technology. Something like 2% of babies in the US are now born through IVF and there are millions of people who are conceived in a lab 
initially that was seen with fear and skepticism, but it's just become an acceptable way to, to make a baby now. And, you know, I expect there will be all of the usual debates will attach to this should it become possible. You know, there are people and there are religions that believe that the only way, to, the only right way to conceive a child is through sexual reproduction. And it's just another part of the world has moved on from that. So I think what this will add to is um, biological determinism is often used as a kind of hammer against people that are seeking to shape their own reality in a way that was different from generations before. And in the US, healthcare and denying healthcare is a way to try to push a social agenda. So I think that will happen here. We can expect those kind of debates to happen once again. Well, as you've been doing this research, were there any thoughts, ideas, conundrums that you came across that we didn't talk about today? Obviously, this is happening in tandem with with the prohibition of abortion in many states. And one legal scholar I spoke to who presented the possibility that we might in the future be in a situation where one echelon of society could make these really detailed choices about their reproductive reality. You know, when they could have kids, the way they have kids, using genetic testing, the, the ability to select the embryo they think will be will have the most advantages in life, all of that, at the same time that other people in our society can't access contraception and can't access abortion care and are forced to stay pregnant when they feel like they can't handle it and or their bodies, you know, resist it. And I think we need to look as clearly as possible at, at that as a reality that we don't want to live in. My guest has been Emily Witt, staff writer for The New Yorker, author of Future Sex. Her latest article in The New Yorker is titled The Future of Fertility. Emily, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate the time. Thank you for having me. All right, that's it for this week. Our producer is Andrea Brody. So how are all these new scientific ideas sitting with you? Are they exciting? Are they scary? Are you curious as to where they're going to take us? Chime in on our Facebook group. You can also find me on Instagram at Jonathan W. Bastion. Thanks as always for joining us on Life Examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Have a wonderful day, and we'll see you next week.